Well, there are plenty of things that pastors fear. One would be when they come back from vacation, 150 people have left their church. <laughs> and uh, such is the case, but uh, we are very thankful. We are thankful for uh, OBC South starting last Sunday. And I know a lot of you have been praying that that would go well, and it did go well. Uh, if you're on the prayer request, uh, email. If you're not, you can email the church and ask to be put on it. But you heard a good praise report this past week. You can also go to obcsouth.org or link from our website and see some of the highlights that happened last Sunday at Bellevue West as there were about 150 people there. And uh, we're real excited about that. And in all sincerity, you know, Lord willing, it would be great if we could do that uh, multiple times over uh, in the years ahead as the Lord sees fit. We're very excited. Those of us who are here, though, are thinking, you know, it's just like we sent our kids off to college or something. And, you know, it's a good thing. You're excited, but at the same time, you're kind of feeling lonely. And where are they? And so... Smile. I'm smiling, and it uh, means probably a little bit more work for the rest of us, and uh, also just seeing how the Lord might work in the, in the future to be able to do such things in the future as well. Pray with me if you would, and then we'll open up God's Word together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the abundant blessings that are ours in Christ, and we are very thankful as a church uh, that about a fifth of us are not here, that actually you're continuing to expand ministry, and uh, we're even a allowed to experience expansion even here in, in this area in Sarpy County, and we're thankful for that. We're thankful for ministry that's going on around the whole world in all different time zones and all different places and different languages, and we're thankful that at times you allow us to be a part of different ministries in different places. We would ask that you would continue to strengthen your church worldwide and that you would uh, allow a strong church worldwide to encourage us and you would allow us even to play our role in encouraging believers in other places, whether it be uh, down the road in Sarpy County or on the other side of the planet, God. Use us uh, for your glory, and we pray these things in the name of your great Son. Amen. Well, one thing we talk a lot about around here is the gospel. And so I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles, if you would, to John 3.16, because we're going to talk about the gospel but really, I just want you to have that place open in your Bible as I sort of set things up a bit. We talk a lot about the gospel, and it makes sense we talk a lot about the gospel because the gospel is the good news. Uh, if I could be so bold as to add to what God says, because I think it's the intent, it's not just good news, it is extraordinarily good news. It is amazing good news, it is great news, the gospel is. That God, being holy, righteous, just, perfect, could see fit to reconcile us as sinners to Himself. Those of us who, who have committed spiritual treason against Him. It's good news that He, God, this amazing, holy, righteous God, would reconcile us, those of us who are against Him, which would include the whole human race, that He would reconcile us to Himself. This is good news. This is amazingly good news. So it's no wonder that we talk a lot about the gospel. We talk about God's great love that motivates him to do this. We talk about his, his great kindness and grace that here he is this great and majestic and sovereign God and he has his son come and he has his son live a perfect life for us, a life we couldn't live. And then he has his son die on a cross. And as he dies on the cross, he experiences the just wrath of the Father that we deserve. And not only that, then he rises again from the dead for us, the Bible says. 
This is good news. And so we talk about the gospel all of the time. We talk about it personally, one-on-one. We talk about it uh, from the pulpit. We talk about it in different ministries of outreach. We are always gospelizing, if you will. And it's justifiably so, as we will see. The Bible says the gospel is of first importance. But there's something about the gospel that we don't talk as much about. And I want to talk about that this morning. I feel compelled as a pastor to remind you of some things about the gospel. Specifically, I want to remind you of our responsibility to the gospel. It's good news, good news, good news, good news, good news. Absolutely. And we're always talking about the good news. Sometimes we forget that there is a responsibility that we have. There's a responsibility that we have to this good news. It is not just that God does all of these amazing things and somehow the gospel is just out there. It's not somehow universally applied to everyone on planet earth. Sometimes we think that way. It's not the case. There's actually a responsibility. We'll divide this up into two different components. We'll talk about universal responsibility that everyone has, no matter what your background is, religiously or culturally, no matter how old you are, no matter how young you are. There's a universal responsibility for men and women, boys and girls, no matter who you are, no matter when you're living, you have a responsibility to the gospel. Then what we'll do is progress and move beyond that and talk about the responsibility those of us who are believers in Christ have to the gospel. So this morning, responsibility to the gospel universally, responsibility to the gospel that we have as believers, which would include us as a church as well. We've got to remember this. And, and we, I guess we talk about this, but we don't uh, quite often, but we don't actually stop and say, we're going to talk about what our responsibility is in this regard, and I want to do that this morning. I had you turn to John 3.16 because, again, sometimes when we read John 3.16, we think somehow it's universally applied as we read this verse, and we go ahead and read it along with me if you would. We see, for God so loved the world, we, we see a universal emphasis there, that He gave His only begotten Son. And we kind of stop there and we think, see, there! The gospel is good news, and the gospel is good news for everyone, and therefore, since I'm part of the everyone... It's good news for me. Well, the verse goes on to talk about responsibility. The first responsibility we have to the gospel, no matter who we are, is belief. Because we keep reading after we read, for God so loved the world. That is to say, literally, God loved the world in this way. God loved the world in a specific way that He gave His only begotten Son, His unique, His one and only Son, that whoever believes, there's that key word, in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. You have a responsibility as a human being, no matter who you are, no matter what language you speak, no matter how old you are, to believe. It's not universally beneficial to you. Apart from belief, you have to believe in Christ yourself. Belief is sometimes, the same Greek word is sometimes translated faith. You have to put your faith in. It's the same word. Or the idea is dependence. You're depending upon Christ. You depend upon Christ and it's personal. 
It is you. You must believe in this. You must depend upon Christ yourself in order to gain benefit from what he has done. It is not somehow by, you know, osmosis. It is not somehow because of the fact that you are a human being or you're an American or something like that, that Christ's death is made personal for you. Belief is the first responsibility. We know this is the case because if you keep reading down in verse 18, it says, He who believes in Him, God's one and only unique Son, Savior, is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Everyone everywhere needs to believe if they're going to benefit from Christ's work. And I would say to you, because you, are made, you make up the everyone, no matter who you are, if you want to benefit from Christ's work, you need to believe. It's personal. You're not depending upon religion. You're not depending upon this church. You're not depending upon anything else other than Christ to carry you there, if you will. That's the image of dependence, of trust. That He will get you there. He will bring about reconciliation for you to God. You need to believe. You need to trust. You need to depend upon. It's a personal responsibility that everyone has. Now what's kind of interesting about this is (laughs) it's not just a suggestion. I want to take a little bit of extra time talking about this because sometimes we forget. Sometimes we think, well, what we need to do is tell everyone that if they would only believe in Christ, they can gain benefit from His work and be reconciled to God. And so what we do is present that to them, and then we leave it up to them. Well, that's true in a sense, but what I would like you to see, and I want to remind you of this morning is, it's not just you present it, God actually commands belief. Have you ever thought about that? If you turn to Acts chapter 16, you'll see. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You're in John. You turn over one book to Acts chapter 16. It's actually a command to believe the truth about Christ, to depend upon Christ, is actually a command that comes from God. And in Acts chapter 16, there were people there, and they were learning about this Jesus, and their, their right question was, well, well, then what must we do? What's our responsibility? What, what, what do we need to do? They, they, they knew enough to understand that it wasn't applied by osmosis. You don't gain benefit just because of the nature of the fact that you're a human being. And so, interestingly enough, in Acts 16, verse 31, it says, the response to their inquiry, they said, believe. Oh, by the way, that's a command. Imperative. Believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. There we have belief being an imperative, being a command. I think that's pretty significant. We saw this sort of, uh, we saw this recently uh, in Romans, in Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Listen to what Paul says about his own ministry. He talks about we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake. Paul's writing to the Romans saying, You know why I'm here on planet Earth? I want to be used by God according to His grace to bring about the obedience of faith. I want to preach the gospel and call people to belief in Christ to bring about the obedience of faith. It's important to see it this way. 
it's important that we see it this way because so often what we think of is, we think of some sort of, uh, some sort of crusade or some sort of evangelistic endeavor and God is assumed to be so small and insignificant lacking any ounce of sovereignty. And it's, here is the sales pitch. Here's what God has done and all these things. And now, it's up to you. You must decide. You're in the seat of sovereignty. You're the king. It's as if you created the universe. It's as if somehow this is all about you and you're in charge. That's not the picture at all. Yes, it's true. You do have to decide. You do have to believe. But at the end of the day, you've got to know that belief is a command. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You, you need to believe. In fact, by not believing, you're, you're not agreeing with God about His great Son and you're just further uh, exacerbating the problem. You're just sinning even more by not doing what God commands, which is, believe in my Son. And so, echoing those words, yes, with love and grace, I trust, and compassion, I would want to say God is so gracious to do this, and God is so loving and merciful to provide this, this great, great work through His Son. But then I do want to say, God is the King. And this God who is the king has one son. And he sent him here to do all of this. And he says to you, as part of his creation, believe. Believe in my one and only son. Depend upon my son. Don't depend upon yourself. Don't depend upon someone else. Believe in my son. It's not an option. Well, we don't usually hear it that way. Perhaps sometimes we don't usually say it that way. It's good for us to look at passages like Acts 16. You're not just sitting there somehow being okay not believing in Christ. Because after all, it's all up to you anyway. No, you, you really do need to believe in Him. It's really important that you do. Because apart from believing in Him, it's judgment already. That's John 3, 6, John 3.18. So we need to remember this even as Christians, to call people to belief, call people to believe in Christ. Well, with that in mind, there's another component, and then I want to circle this a little bit closer and tighter. But not only do we find ourselves being called to believe in Christ, that's the universal responsibility to the gospel, we also are called universally to repent of our sin. If you turn to Acts 17, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Again, you're probably already in Acts 16. You just turn over to Acts 17, and you'll see there's a, a, a like call to repentance. No matter who you are, no matter what your background is, God calls you to repent. And what you find in the Bible is faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. Not a perfect illustration, but a pretty good one. And what you find sometimes in the Bible is it doesn't say believe, but it's in the context of the gospel, and it says repent to turn from your sin. And sometimes it doesn't say repent, it says believe in the context of the gospel. To believe in Christ. And what you end up finding, we're going to see actually both words in our same text. The idea is as you are turning to Christ and trusting in Him and Him alone, something happens. You are turning from your sin. You're turning from your, your sinfulness of trying to earn your way by way of religion. You're turning from your, your rebellion against God because now you're agreeing with God and you just can't help. But as you're turning to Christ, you, you, you turn from your sin. We see it in Acts 17, and we see that it is a command in Acts 17, and so it's rather powerful. 
Look with me, if you would, at verse 30. Paul's been setting up all the truth about Christ and about God's long-suffering and how it's all going to come to a head, if you will, through Christ. In verse 30, it says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring, that that's this authority word, it has that imperatival idea, not an option. God is now declaring, God, God the Sovereign One, to men that all people everywhere should repent. Universal call from God is turn from your sin. Turn from your sin. Stop sinning. Don't do that. Stop offending me. And it's in the context of the gospel. And interestingly enough, if you keep reading down in verse 34, it says, but some men joined him and believed. You see, he he didn't say believe. He said repent and and, and they believe. Well, it's because the two ideas are, are... synonymous in that they always go together. You see both of them right there in the same passage. They're believing because they're repenting, and they're repenting because they're believing. We won't take the time to go there, but 1 Thessalonians 1.9 is a great cross-reference. It doesn't use either word, but it gives a great picture. As they turn to God, or as they turn... It goes the other way. Uh, no, I had it right. As they turn to God, they turn from idols. You turn to God in faith... You turn from idols in repentance. So what I'm seeking to do pastorally is to be faithful in reminding you. The gospel is good news. It's great news. We want to emphasize it all of the time as we're supposed to. But please don't conclude that this gospel is applied apart from faith and repentance, which are personal. They are your moral responsibility before God. He says, believe! He says, repent! In the context of the Gospel. And you say, but Pat, what about the sovereignty of God? But Pat, what about the doctrines of grace? But Pat, what about the fact that we believe in universal depravity and radical depravity and all of these things, whatever you want to call it? Nothing I've said in any way, shape, or form compromises any of that the bible clearly teaches faith is a gift philippians 1 29 ephesians 2 the bible clearly teaches that repentance is a gift both are gifts from god second timothy 2 25 but that didn't keep paul or john the baptist or jesus from calling people commanding people to repent it is our obligation. Now we know when we do that, I know when I stand up here and literally say, try to look people in the eye and say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I really mean it. And you really need to. I know in my mind it won't happen apart from God's sovereign grace. Absolutely, that's true. And when I say repent, God is declaring to everyone everywhere that they must repent. And I really believe that. And I know in my mind repentance is ultimately going to come as a result of God's grace. But we must not forget that we do call people to faith and we do call people to repentance and we must not forget that we are obligated to believe. And apart from believing, we will face judgment. John 3.18 So please remember, if you've never believed in Christ, you must believe in Christ. If you've never repented from your sins personally, you, not your parents or your children for you, you must repent of your sins. Or there is judgment. 
This is good. This isn't bad. This is good. But it is our responsibility that He has done everything for us. What is left to be done? It is to say, He has done everything. Therefore, I'm believing in Him. I'm depending upon Him. And I'm not depending upon myself. And I'm, I, as I'm trusting in Him, I'm not trusting in myself. And I'm not clinging to my sin anymore. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a believer. Please do not forget that. And if we move on, let's now move from the universal responsibility, which is worth us just talking about the whole time. Oh, and by the way, maybe I'll just add one footnote. Some of you are thinking, Pat, I know all this stuff. Well, you might know all this stuff. But if you really know this stuff and you're alive and your, your, your pulse is actually there, you also know that there are lots of people who don't know this stuff and they think somehow it's universally applied to them because they believe in the red, white, and blue. Or that somehow we're not obligated to repent and believe. You must. Boys and girls, coming to Omaha Bible Church and hearing about how great Jesus is is not cutting it for you. You must believe in Christ. You must repent of your sins. Read what Jesus Himself said. Now let's move on. Now let's move beyond what in one sense we never want to move beyond. But for this morning, now let's talk about what our responsibility is as believers. What is our responsibility to the gospel as believers? And I've got a half a dozen or so uh, responsibilities that we have. We have as a church. We have as Christian individuals. But I didn't want to overlook the first one, that first universal responsibility. But we have a responsibility. Okay, let's say by God's grace and only by God's grace, we believe in Christ. And then by believing, we repent of our sin. Now what? There are things we're responsible for. Not because we're trying to pay God back. Not because somehow we need to live up to His expectations. No, 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 we can't do that. Christ did it all. But having been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, now as believers who have new hearts, who have been regenerated by the power of God's Spirit, we have responsibilities. We as a church have responsibilities. Let's talk about those. One responsibility we have as believers is to know the gospel. To know the gospel. And I like to add, to be a little bit silly, but to make the point, we need to know the gospel. You need to know the gospel beyond... Diaper level. Okay? Beyond, you know, thumb-sucking level. You need to know the gospel in a, in a mature way. We see this in Romans chapter 1, verse 15. We saw it several weeks ago. Um, and by the way, thank you for those of you who sent me emails saying, when in the world are we going to get back to Romans? I love you too. Um, <laughs> I actually do. I'm actually glad for that kind of good pressure. And see, we're in Romans right now. So stop bothering me. <laughs> uh, next week, Lord willing, we will be back in Romans. That is the plan. So I'm, I'm done vacating for the summer. And uh, we're ready to be back in the flow of things. But you need to know the gospel. And you need to know, know the gospel, yes, in its simplicity, that, that, that you are a sinner and God is holy and righteous and yet He maintains His righteousness. And at the same time, He has His Son come and die for you and having lived for you and He rises again from the dead. And if you believe those basic truths and you truly believe in them, you're a Christian, that's absolutely the gospel. I would never want to make it more complicated than that. Other than to say, there's some depth behind all of that. 
And God wants you to know some of the depth behind that. He doesn't want you to know the gospel only on a diaper level. Romans 1 in verse 15 gave us a little glimpse of this when we saw several weeks ago. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And we looked at that, and I won't take time to regurgitate all of that. Bad image. Sorry. We won't rehash all of that, but the idea, what he's saying is, I'm writing to you Roman believers, and I'm really wanting to come so I can preach the gospel to you. What? We talked at length about what he would be, what he's getting at. He couldn't go because of circumstances, according to the providence of God, to go and be with the Romans. And so what does he give them instead? He gives them the book of Romans. The gospel. He's referring to the book of Romans as a synonym for the gospel. I don't know about you, but I'm thinking, wow. That's pretty major. He's expecting them as relatively new Christians to actually understand Romans. And and he wanted to go tell them these things, to preach the gospel to them. But since he can't, he gives them the next best thing, which in the providence of God is actually better because we actually have it here in Scripture rated under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so we're thankful for that. But that's pretty major. I mean, you've got first several chapters. The gospel, this, this universal depravity... Uh, not only that, you, you have imputation of Adam's sin, gospel. You have the imputation of Christ's righteousness, gospel. Uh, you have justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and clearly articulating uh, why that must be the gospel. Gospel? You, you have uh, justification being inseparably linked from to, to sanctification in Romans chapter 6 as an outflow of that, gospel. You have sovereignty of God and salvation, gospel. You have security, uh, argued with such articulateness, gospel. And I've just run out of steam, and I could keep giving you more that Romans talks about. It's all under the banner of gospel. Pretty new believers. Been believers for less time than lots of us in this room. We need to own that stuff. And that's one of the reasons why we're studying Romans. We need to know the gospel beyond diaper level. Romans is a great help in that way. But we really do need to know it. And then what happens? It doesn't mean every time we talk to someone, we have to give them, you know, somehow, somehow a treatise on imputation. We don't, every time we talk to an unbeliever, we don't have to unpack all of these things to them and use all of this verbiage and all of this stuff. But here's what does happen. You are more faithful at being able to communicate those truths. Here's what does happen. You understand the greatness and the depth of the gospel and it causes you to praise God like you've never praised Him before, a la Romans 12, right? I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, all of you, as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You will worship God like you've never worshipped before. How? By learning another ditty to the piano and the drums? No, you'll worship God like you've never worshipped God before because you move beyond diaper level. It's the key to true worship. And so we have a responsibility to know the gospel as believers. A second responsibility we have as believers is to see the gospel as the most important thing in the whole world. And we talk about this all of the time. First Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, I presented to you that which is of what? First importance. 
He's talking about the life of Christ and the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And he says, with a big giant stamp, first importance, the most important thing in the whole world is this truth. Well, as a Christian, you have the responsibility to agree with what God has said through His Apostle. What's the most important thing in the whole world? It's the Gospel. That means it's more important than anything else I have. As fun as I might consider other things to be. As important as other things might be. And there are other things that are important and they're to be done to the glory of God. But ultimately, at the end of the day, what overshadows all of them is the gospel. How about if we even bring it in-house a little bit? Yes, we all have our certain doctrines and Christian things we like to study and things we're drawn toward. But you know what should be overshadowing every other discipline in Christian study? What should be overshadowing all of the other ones, if you're really in sync with what the Bible is saying and with what God wants you to do, it is the gospel. Should be why, why do we have to look at all this other stuff? Well, because God talks about it, so it's important too. But at the end of the day, what is the number one thing? What is the best thing? It is understanding the gravity of what Christ has done through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, right? We have a responsibility to see the gospel as the most important thing in the whole world. And I love the fact that that is the general desire of Omaha Bible Church. Doesn't mean we've arrived. We haven't. Doesn't mean I've arrived. I haven't. That's my wife. (laughs) But I want my heart to beat for the gospel more than it beats for anything else and to have it be first and foremost, because that's what God says is to be the case. Another responsibility we have as Christians and as a church to the gospel as believers is to resolve ourselves to proclaim it with integrity. We need to make up our minds ahead of time before we ever get into that situation where we're going to open up our mouth about the gospel, whether it be in a Sunday school class or whether it be at the water cooler or whether it be on the court Before we ever open up our mouths and we're ever even in that situation, we need to resolve ourselves. We need to make up our mind and commit ourselves that we are going to speak the gospel and we're going to speak it truly. We're going to speak it with integrity. And if you have a Bible, I'll ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And you'll see a great, great passage dealing with what we would call methodology, methods of evangelism. And the Apostle Paul, in such a great and amazing way, is showing himself as an example and saying, look, when you speak the gospel, be sure, be sure, be sure, be sure that you truly speak the gospel, that you speak the gospel with integrity. Be careful that you don't succumb to the temptation to trim the edges around the gospel to make it more palatable. Be sure that you don't when you speak the gospel. Somehow you know because you want to maybe close the deal and get them to make a quote-unquote decision. Be sure you don't water it down and, and make it more palatable. Be sure you don't you know try to spice it up a little bit to make it look better. He's saying, no, 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 no. Don't, 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 don't do that. We need to hear that. Gospel integrity from those of us who speak the gospel, which should be all of us. I love 1 Corinthians 2. And when I came to you, brethren, he's talking to Christians at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 2.1. And when I came to you, brethren, 
I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. It's not because Paul was a flunky. It wasn't because he wasn't very well educated. The exact opposite is true. Verse 2, For I determined, that's where I got my idea, resolved. I made my mind up ahead of time to know, I love this, nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I made up my mind, I wasn't going to talk about anything other than the basics of the gospel. The truth about the crucified Messiah. Verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Verse 4, in my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. I didn't come as a sales rep. I didn't come trying to close the deal. But in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? Ultimate reason behind this in verse 5, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men. My wisdom is what he's saying, but on the power of God. I love that. That's, that's gospel integrity. You might have a PhD or the equivalent. But if you're going to use that somehow to get people to quote-unquote make a decision that they would not have made otherwise, you are way out of bounds and you don't have gospel integrity. He's saying, stick to the script. And by sticking to the script, what will happen is, and we're not going to take the time to look at the greater context, but in the passage, he makes it clear that if you do this, some people are going to reject and think you're a fool. But other people are going to believe and and be converted. He's getting at it is if you stick to the script, when people are converted, you'll know that they're not your converts. You'll know that they're God's. And so as the Corinthian believers were being tempted to somehow sell out the gospel to get more notches in their evangelistic belts, Paul's saying, no, 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 don't, don't, don't go there for a million reasons. Don't go there. Remember, when I came to you, I just preached the gospel. Gloves off. You are a sinner deserving the wrath of God. And He is just and He's laying out all this truth. And God, He is gracious and merciful and He has His Son come and His Son do all of the work. And if you trust in Him and Him alone, you will be reconciled to God. And some people said, that guy's an idiot. And other people said, I believe that. And He's saying, You are the folks who believe that. Why in the world would you want to compromise and give a different message so you can have more converts? Because in the end, they're your converts. Please, as you present the gospel to people, leave the edges. Stick to the script. Because then when people are converted, they really will be converted. Right? It's our responsibility to present the gospel with integrity. We have another responsibility as believers. Fourth on my list of six. We'll just do this one quickly and in passing. We have the responsibility to defend the gospel when necessary. We have the responsibility to defend the gospel when necessary. We won't even take the time to go there because time is is fleeting. But Galatians would be the book I would take you to. I didn't want to leave this one out because there is an important place for defending the gospel. Galatians makes it clear that 
if someone, doesn't matter who they are, if someone wants to say it's what Christ has done plus something that you do through religion, through whatever, it's time to take the gloves off. And you fight. Because when you say it's Christ plus human effort, it's another gospel that's not really another. It's a false message. And it really strips Christ of His greatness and the cross of its power. That's Galatians 1, 8 and 9. That's really the whole book of Galatians. And so when that happens... There's a time and a place for taking the gloves off and we have a responsibility as a church, we have a responsibility as Christians to stand up and say, no. It's all Christ. 100%. And to say anything else is to say something that ought not ever be said. We want to remember that we have that responsibility. That's really the whole book. A fifth responsibility that we have to the gospel as Christians is to live in light of the gospel. We have, to, we have the responsibility to live in light of the gospel. You know, some, some of you might want to sign up for Galatians 1 ministry. Yeah, you know, I kind of like to fight. <laughs> you know, uh, let's go. I can sniff out a heretic, you know, a mile away. Some of us are more bent toward doing that kind of thing. We've got to remember that while it's true that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and it is so important that we will go to the wall for that reality, we also have to remember that if you're really a Christian, your life changes. You, you now do show the fruit of the Spirit of Galatians 5. And the last thing you want to do is fight. What you want to do is to show love and, and grace and all of these great things that come as a result of the Spirit regenerating your heart. You live a different life. If you're a Christian, I hope you are totally committed to salvation based solely on what Christ has done. That's sort of the definition of a Christian. But remember that while salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, such a salvation does not remain alone. If God regenerates your heart through the power of the Spirit, guess what? You went from having a dead heart to a heart that's alive. John 3, and then now you actually want to live a new life. I want you to look at one passage before we move on to number 6, and that's Titus chapter 2. In Titus chapter 2, it's a great text that reminds us of the fact that we as Christians shouldn't just preach salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, although we should. We also have to realize that something happens when we are converted and our lives change. We could look at Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and 10 to see this. We won't for the sake of time this morning. Titus 2.14 is a great one because it, it links godly living with the work of Christ. So bound up in the work of Christ that is applied only by grace, only through faith in Christ, bound up in that is the power to transform a person's life. Titus 2.14, context is redemption, context is the work of Christ, God's design in that. Verse 14 says, who gave himself for us, Christ gave himself for us, to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Now here's real life for us, zealous for good deeds. 
That, that's in the here and now. That, that, that's what happens in, in light of His great redemption tied to His great redeeming work is this idea of us now being, as a result of His work, as a result of being Christians, we're zealous for good deeds. I love the image. It it's, could even be seen in the negative. Zealous? We're greedy for good deeds. I just want to do the right thing now. For so much of my life, I didn't do the right thing. And God got a hold of me according to His grace and and His mercy. And I've believed in Christ according to His grace and His mercy. And He's brought about repentance in my life. And you know what? I just can't wait to do the right thing. Isn't that good? We have that responsibility. We say we're Christians. Well, tied to the very essence of Christianity the redemptive work of Christ, Titus 2.14, is a zeal to do the right thing. If you don't have a zeal to do the right thing, you've got to go back to the redemptive work of Christ. Christians are supposed to be zealous to do the right thing. Not to earn favor with God, but because we already have favor with God. And then finally, final response that we have to the gospel Number six on my list is the response of assurance. We have a responsibility to be sure of our salvation. We have a responsibility to be sure of our salvation. And if you turn with me to 1 John, I want to show you what I'm talking about. And I'm going to add one little thing to that point on your outline. But I'm going to do that in just a little while. If you go to the book of Revelation, which is the last book, then you back up to the book of Jude, then 3 John, 2 John, then 1 John chapter 5. Lots of religions in the world are clear about this. You can never be sure you're, or you can never be sure you're going to heaven. And some religions that wear the name tag Christian say you can never be sure you're going to heaven. In fact, at different times in history, they would say, if you say that you can be sure, you are damned to hell for sure. So they're sure about that. Well, the Bible has a little bit different take on it. Last time I checked, it's the Christian book. So, let's see what it says. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know, there's our assurance word, that you have eternal life. I say, aha! I like that. I like it that that's not the only place. I like Romans 8. I like other places in Scripture too. There's a place for Christian assurance. You know what? I believe in Christ. I believe what He's done for me. I believe with all my heart. I'm depending upon Him. And as I depend upon Him, I've repented of my sins. And the Bible says I can know. I can have assurance. This is great. We underestimate how great this is. Talk to someone who's been in bondage to another religious system for a long time where they could never have this, and you'll talk to someone who will get you to see how great this is. This is, this is magnificent. You can actually know? This is great. And so I would say to you, you have a responsibility. If you've trusted in Christ and Christ alone, you're depending upon Him and Him alone, you know what? He's the one that gets you there anyway. You can have assurance. Without taking away from that at all, I would be remiss of my duties as a pastor. I would be remiss of my duties as someone just trying to faithfully interpret the Bible if I didn't 
take you back to that point in the outline. Number six, be assured. And if I didn't say dot, 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 if you should be, or something like that. Be assured. Dot, dot, dot. If you should be assured. Say, what? I don't understand. Well, 1 John chapter 5 didn't say in verse 13, you may know that you have eternal life because you prayed a prayer, because you said you asked Jesus into your heart. If you reread it, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. Oh, these things. There's a clue. You know, as I say so often, you can make the Bible say anything, but you can't make the Bible say anything in context. He's assuming you've read the first five chapters and now toward the end of chapter five, you can say and you have an idea of what these things are. Maybe we'll have a special service at the end of the service for all of you uh, who have partaked and, and been a part of an evangelistic crusade where the people come forward, they pray a prayer, and then you give them 1 John 5.13 and you say, now you know you have eternal life because you came forward and prayed the prayer. We want you to repent after the service. <laughs> we won't really have such a service after the service, but you see the point. <laughs> you, you do that because of voodoo Bible interpretation. You, you, you would flunk out of your... You'd, you'd get an F on your first paper in baby Bible college. These things I've written to you who believe so that you may know. Oh, we got to read the first five chapters. What did he write? Well, he wrote that there are certain things that a Christian life is to look like. He gave a whole bunch of tests. You know what? By the grace of God, if you pass the tests... You can know that you have eternal life because you look like a Christian. You, you are a Christian because you look like a Christian. You, you act like a Christian. So you know what? You can have assurance. For example, look at chapter 3. I'll just pick out one of them. And by the way, it would be more than appropriate if you talk to someone who says they believe to say, you know you can have assurance. You know what I would encourage you to do is read First John. Not chapter 5. The whole thing. And you know what? There's a place. It's great. You can be sure. But have them read the whole thing. Because look, chapter 3, verse 7. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. Ah, there's a place for deception when it comes to assurance. Maybe well-meaning parents. Maybe well-meaning children. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. Just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin. Because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin. I'll insert, if you have NIV, it makes it clear. But it's present tense. It's the pattern of your life. It's not a one-time event or no one could ever have assurance. Because he's born of God. Verse 10, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Did you see that? There's a verse in the Bible that says it could be obvious who a person, uh, who a Christian is and who a Christian is not. Apart from my bad grammar, <laughs> you can actually look at a person and say, it's obvious who is a child of God and who's a child of the devil. Man, if there's a verse in the Bible like that, I would like to see it. Well, there it is. Verse 10. How, how are they obvious? Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. 
which is a manifestation of righteousness. Read the whole book on your, on your own time, another time. But you see, you read through and you say, oh, by the grace of God, I'm passing the test. Not because I'm a better person, not because somehow I'm good or I'm just trying harder, but because of what God has done for me in Christ, you know what? And He's given me a new heart according to John 3. And I'm not perfect, I still struggle, but these present tense verbs in here are helpful to me. The pattern of my life is I'm doing the right thing. Oh, I have assurance. It's what's intended. It's what's meant. There's a place for assurance. It's a great place. We just have to be careful that we don't assure people of their salvation if they're not really Christians. Think about this with me, if you would. No one who struggles, no one who is a Christian who struggles with assurance will go to hell because of their struggle with assurance. No one who is a Christian who struggles with assurance will go to hell because of their struggle with assurance. As much as I don't like to see people struggle, I'm going to say that. But now think about this. There are many people who are sure of their salvation who will go to hell and in part because of their assurance of salvation that they do not have. Many people who are sure they are Christians, but who are not, will go to hell, and in part it will be because they were sure of their salvation, which they did not have. You say, how can you justify that? Matthew 7. Jesus says, on that day, judgment day, many, I said many, that's why, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, they're professing Christians, didn't we do all these things in your name? They're sure of their salvation. If anyone had assurance, it's those people. They are so sure of their salvation, they're saying, Lord, Lord, and they're saying, we did all these things in your name. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you because you never walked an aisle. No. Because you never prayed a prayer. No. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. It's First John. You say you're Christians, but you have no basis for assurance because you don't pass the test. You don't look like a Christian. Many people who are sure of their salvation will go to hell. And one of the vehicles used in leading them to hell is being sure that they're Christians. See, because if you struggle and say, I don't really know if I'm a Christian, at least you're still at the place where you're looking for the answer, which is in the cross and the transforming power that is in the cross. So let's be sure that we're Christians by the grace of God. There's a great place for that. But let's not be sure and let's not assure others if there's not a place for that. We have that responsibility. You know, one thing I hope and pray among many, many things is somehow I'm not used in the process of assuring anyone who will one day be a Matthew 7 person. 
I'm not looking to be an ogre. I don't want you to be an ogre. I don't want to be an ogre church. Never assuring anyone. Oh, by the way, I don't want to assure anyone because it's not my responsibility, but never pointing them to how they can be sure. You know, on the other side of it, I don't want to be someone who is used to assure someone who will eventually be a Matthew 7 person. That just seems like one of the worst things that could ever happen. Molly and I have been doing a Bible study with a couple and we've been working through John. We just started, we finished Romans and we started John and we were in John 2 the other day and it's pretty interesting at the end of John 2 after Jesus does his first public miracle. It says many were believing in him. And you say, oh, that's awesome. Then it says, but Jesus was not entrusting himself to them. Literally, but Jesus was not believing in them. Wow. Because he knew what was in their hearts. There's such a thing as spurious faith. There's such a thing as, as non, non-saving faith. They believed in him. Maybe for what he could do for them. After all, he can make some serious wine out of water. They believed, but he didn't believe in them. That's sort of the billion-dollar question. Do you believe in Jesus? You're supposed to believe. But what you need to deal with and consider by the grace of God is if He believes in you. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank You so much for this opportunity. We have to talk about our responsibility to the Gospel. And I pray for those who have never believed truly that they would regardless of what's happened in their past. It's great to know that you forgive sinners no matter what we've done and how we've offended you. Lord, we would ask that you would give us assurance when we should have assurance and that you would use your Bible and your Holy Spirit, maybe even your saints, to have us not have assurance when we shouldn't have it, lest one day we end up like the many who will say, Lord, Lord, and hear those awful words from from you. And certainly I would not want that for anyone who's here this morning or for myself. Lord, as we have an opportunity now to do one more thing in response to the gospel as believers, Lord, may it be a great, great act of worship as we obey you in taking basic things like bread and wine, eating them, drinking them together, and celebrating your son's perfect death. In Jesus' name, amen.